Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Aaron O'Toole, new leader of the Federal Conservative Party, has introduced himself to Canada. What do you think? Sam Cooper, investigative reporter for Global News, has another series of stunning articles about Nortel and Huawei's involvement in their collapse. And where is Hamilton when it comes to COVID-19? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Riding my bike into the dog days of summer, changing my mask more than my underwear. Oh, man. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Had no problem with that part, did he? All right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12.09. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air in week number 24 of the COVID-19 experiment. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, many ways to do that. The commentary podcast edition of is waiting for you. On Facebook and Twitter, you can also send me a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Interesting little uh, topic for the uh, commentary today. Uh, in Germany, they did a concert experiment where they invited people into a concert, 1,500 people, did various seating arrangements, and they're all guinea pigs to try to figure out how this uh, coronavirus spreads and uh, what they can do to prevent it and such in large groups. Amazing when you think about it. Uh, and apparently no shortage of 1,500 uh, guinea pigs to line up and see a free show. All right. Uh, interesting uh, turn of events over the course of the conservative leadership campaign. Obviously a uh, pandemic in the middle, changing everything and everyone's lives for that matter. Uh, then, of course, uh, an upset with uh, Peter McKay, thought to have been the front runner, and Aaron O'Toole uh, beating him out in, uh, in, in a tight race, and Leslin Lewis uh, making uh, incredible gains as well. To talk about all of this, uh, Peter Wollstonecroft is with us, retired professor of political science, University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, and hello, bonjour. So uh, we just saw Aaron O'Toole, uh, Aaron O'Toole's first press conference and such. Uh, your thoughts of what you saw? He seems uh, very jovial, very down-to-earth. Well, yes, he did. And my thought was that uh, when Andrew Scheer became leader of the party in 2017, the big question was, who is Andrew Scheer? And there is that question for most Canadians with Aaron O'Toole, about two-thirds of Canadians really don't have a view of him. So this is his first introduction. Uh, it's an important process that we're seeing because he wants to define himself uh, before the Liberals in particular define him for electors, for Canadians. So this is his first appearance. And, uh, yeah, he uh, uh, um, optically, uh, he looked uh, comfortable in his skin, and I think that's very important uh, on television. He didn't seem nervous. Uh, Andrew Shear always seemed very constrained, um, and and is better when he's not on camera. Uh, so he, uh, Aaron O'Toole seemed very comfortable. Um, took questions uh, freely. Uh, the only thing I I thought was that it was just under thirty minutes, and I thought that was a bit short for your first appearance. 
but he says he had other things to do. He was lots of things going on, which is true, but nonetheless, nothing like free airtime. So uh, this is his first introduction or presentation of himself beyond the leadership race. Um, so what did I get out of it? So that's all. I'll jump ahead here. Uh, how is he presenting himself? Well, my note said he he had the image of Captain Canada, uh, going to work hard uh, for the national interest and all that kind of stuff, uh, that he has a uh, regular background, middle class, comes out of uh, family, worked at General Motors in, in Oshawa, that kind of thing. But most importantly, there was the language of inclusiveness, uh, which to my mind, I did not think he was talking about during the leadership race. But suddenly, all kinds of Canadians, and those particularly those people who are non-binary, uh, they're welcome in the party. Uh, here's a couple of clips of Aaron O'Toole's uh, speech that we pieced together, just to give you a bit of a bit of a sample of what Peter's talking of. Here's Aaron O'Toole. Canadians are losing their jobs, their homes, and their hope. Even before the pandemic, half of Canadian families were just one surprise two hundred dollar expense away from not being able to pay their rent or their bills. Now millions of Canadians are barely getting by. I know how many of you are more concerned about the future than ever before. My family and I feel the same way. Justin Trudeau would rather play politics than do his job. Even now, with our country still in a crisis, he may be trying to trigger an early election. Because of that, I may soon be asking Canadians for the chance to serve as prime minister so we can get this country back on track. Uh, for many uh, Canadians, Peter, this will be their first impression of Aaron O'Toole. What are your thoughts as far as a first impression? Well, I, I, I see him as uh, just folks. I come out of an ordinary background, and I'm concerned about ordinary Canadians. Now, let's be, let's be frank here. Every politician is going to say that. It doesn't matter sure. whether you're the leader of the NDP, the Green Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Party. Uh, so is there authenticity? Well, I would say that somebody coming new to this would think that this guy means what he says, which is not always a view that people have of politicians. Doug Ford strikes people that way. He says it as he means it, and, as, and, and, and so that's uh, to Aaron O'Toole's advantage in all of this. Uh, he made comments, uh, you know, and it's always interesting what direction uh, the opposition is going to go when they make a speech like this, how much attention they're going to spend to their own policy as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, the government of the day and what is going on. Made the comments about uh, elitist type of government and, and relying on his name. Is that resonating with Canadians? Is that Does that resonate with the middle class? Well, I, th- I think that... Yeah, I, I think there is that view, uh, and it's a, it's an easy target, and there's some merit to the target. And uh, you know, as I, you know, you can do surveys, but I also spend a lot of time talking to ordinary folks. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about municipal politics, provincial, or federal politics. There is a kind of a default position, which is that people like me are not are not uh, listened to. Our interests are not heard. And and the liberals always have this uh, this image that the well connected gets uh, get access. So if you go back to the we me controversy uh, scandal in quotation marks, 
this is what it looks like. It looks like insider dopester politics. I'm not saying the Conservatives don't play that game, but for most Canadians, they don't feel that their voices are given much attention. And I, and I heard Aaron O'Toole trying to say, look, uh, I, I, I'm aligned with ordinary folks. I come out of an ordinary family. I work hard. I try to do the best. I'm here to serve. And I want to build a modern party that welcomes all Canadians, regardless of whatever their background is. Also spoke a lot of uh, about unity. Actually, right off the top, uh, talked about uh, you know the views of, of those out west and uh, the oil patch, and and made comments about getting uh, resources uh, to market. And, and another interesting comment that he had never seen the country so divided. Um, is is this working? Will this work to bring in everybody? To bring everybody to unite people. Well, I, I, what I focused on was that he said we have to take uh, Canadian natural resources to Canadians. And so mm. he wants to have a meeting with the Premier of Quebec. And surely there's going to be a discussion about a uh, east-west pipeline wow. and to deliver petroleum products to eastern Canada, particularly Quebec. So he, he wants to sound out the Premier of Quebec. And Quebec has been steadfast. We don't want a pipeline. We don't want a pipeline even though they get an enormous amount of their oil and gas uh, needs met by people coming from across the, the Atlantic Ocean. Well, we so remember during we the rail strike, we remember during the rail strike, Peter, that you know one of the first provinces to complain was Quebec that they weren't getting their propane delivered they, by yeah, rail. I was just going to make that point. Propane. Where's our propane? Hey, we need our propane. Well, I'm sorry, but you don't have a pipeline. So I'm sure that that point will be made. Uh, and so that's what I mean by the Captain Canada thing, where we're going to think in Canadian terms and the Canadian market and build up Canadian businesses. Uh, so well, that's what he's talking about. And, and um, now I would also say that there's a couple of difficulties. Uh, the social conservatives constituted 35% of the electorate, uh, this, this leadership race, and they have expectations, but he made it very clear that he's pro-life. I think he, he may put a condition on it, because I'm not too sure if he's nine months pro-life or fewer months than that. Uh, but also, uh, there was, and one of the questions was right on point. You did very well on Quebec, in Quebec, but were these just the gun lobby people, the people who are opposed to what the liberals are doing? And what are you going to do about uh, uh, the gun lobby across Canada, but which has a, a, a significant holding in Quebec? whether uh, will you be addressing in any kind of comforting way what they're looking for because they were certainly part of your constituency what uh are your thoughts on his ability he certainly from what i understood and, and said this you know, basically nobody wants an election but if one if that's the option they're they're ready to go do you think that he is or the conservative party is ready for an election to take on the prime minister in, 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 a, in a strong way, can he beat the prime minister? Well, I, th- I think they've got the money. Uh, and organizationally, because of the leadership race, which requires people to be organized across the country in every electoral district, they, they have the basis for a national election campaign. Um, and I don't think the NDP is in any position organizationally or financially to have an election. And the big question is, is I mean, what would the liberals do in their speech from the throne and whether they will want to force an election. But the big question is, what do Canadians think about this? This is always a question when you have a minority government. 
are people uh, of the mind that it's time to have an election, clear the air, uh, somebody wins, somebody loses kind of situation. And I have no idea, nobody has any idea about whether what people will think about the election. Uh, I think what people will be looking at what happens in New Brunswick. I mean, if the, if the conservative government is thrashed in New Brunswick uh, in a minority situation and having called an election, people will be very, very leery of going there if the, if the conservatives do poorly. If they do well, then people will say, hey, people are happy to have an election, even if we have to deal with a pandemic. Do you really think Canadians right now would want an election in the middle of a pandemic? Um, I, you know, I, I can don't it, know. I, I don't think so. I, you, I would you, think so. I would agree with that, Peter, because, again, you know, uh, I'm sure we'll go through it if we have to. But, you know, I remember times when governments are calling elections early and it's come back to bite them. And if there was ever going to be a case of that, it would seem during a pandemic. I mean, again, yeah. everybody, oh, I think, uh, agrees there uh, needs to be a reset. But, you know, school is heading back. Uh, we're getting a change off of the CERB into employment insurance. So September, October just seem to be real transitional months and bad times, a uh, bad time time right now for an election and, and if if you get blamed for the election happening and the pandemic worsens and we have a second lockdown you will be severely hurt and that is the risk uh, so when people ask me this question I say, well who knows and and but the uh, are the liberals going to be aggressive and put forward a, a platform that the other parties cannot support uh, i actually don't think so i i think they'd be have to be i, I can't imagine the platform presented by the Liberals that the NDP wouldn't say, yeah, okay, we agree with that. Uh, so I don't think we were there. And, I, you know, so I don't, I do not expect an election. I expect an election next year, assuming, assuming we get through uh, this period uh, uh, without too much trouble and a vaccine is on the horizon. Will People are not the- going to feel comfortable until there's a vaccine. Yeah. Will the opposition have to keep, uh, give away the farm in order to prevent an election? Well, there you go. I, that's the game you play in minority minority situations, and uh, uh, you know, some, sometimes a government will deliberately uh, present a, a platform that they know the opposition parties will not support and cause an election. Uh, other times, you can buy the electorate or try to buy support by spending in areas that a particular party is keen on. So it's obvious what you would do for the NDP. You could do things uh, uh, for the Greens. You do things perhaps even for the Conservatives. You know that the bloc is itching for an election because they think they're in the strong position. So, yeah, uh, and you, the Liberals have already opened up the vault and taken all, a lot of the treasure out of there, so they would be spending money uh, easily if, if they really want to avoid an election. Uh, is the Prime Minister's office concerned about who has been elected Conservative leader? Does it matter to them whether it's McKay or O'Toole? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I think I think that they was Peter McKay. They would have thought, well, we have a somebody who's been there and knows the game. Uh, uh, Aaron O'Toole has, has been there for a while, but I mean, he was a junior cabinet minister. Um, however, I think they would look at him and say, well, this guy does manage to speak in French. So, uh, on a couple of questions, I thought that he switched from French to English rather quickly. Um, but this is a guy who beavers away. Uh, and uh, applies himself 100%, and they can't take him lightly. And if you just, the the takeaway, and you started this interview off with this, that he seemed very comfortable in his 
position as new party leader, new leader of the opposition, and holding his first press conference. He didn't seem rattled. He didn't seem uncomfortable. And uh, so most people looking at that, not wanting to get into policy wonky stuff or philosophical stuff, would say he looks like he's happy being there. That's important. All right. Uh, Peter Wollstonecroft has been with us, retired professor of political science, University of Waterloo. Aaron O'Toole laying out his vision for the party and Canada this morning during a news conference. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Bye. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Aaron O'Toole uh, addressing the media today for the first time, other than, of course, uh, extremely late at night when uh, he was given the nomination to lead the, or sorry, the uh, confirmation to lead the uh, federal conservatives. Michael Tobe is with us now. Michael, your thoughts on the first speech, uh, public speech for Aaron O'Toole as uh, a leader of the opposition? Uh, hey, Scott. Yeah, I thought it was actually very good. I think that he he hit all the right notes, and he's been doing that ever since he became leader a couple of days ago, which is that he's been looking, you know, he's been being friendly, smiling in front of the camera, introducing himself, which isn't the broken record strategy. It is simply because he's not well-known outside of conservative circles, at least in Canada. I mean, certainly some people know him, as Durham Wright, and knows him quite well. But he obviously has to introduce himself to a lot of people. And what he's also doing is he's establishing very early on the things that he believes in and that he will continually fight for as leader of the Conservative Party. And there's a wide swath of it. We obviously don't have time for everything, but naturally fiscal issues, which are important to small C conservatives as well as many Canadians. Basically, you know, obviously fighting for lower taxes or reducing some of the tax rates that the federal liberals have hiked on us recently, you know, cutting back on the size of government or streamlining it to make it more effective. Uh, He will obviously support various social programs. He's taking a moderate line on social conservative issues or social issues, which includes abortion, gay marriage and so forth pointing out the fact that he is really in the center socially. He's not a social conservative by nature, but he also respects the viewpoint of social conservatives and recognizes that the Conservative Party is a big tent and there are a lot of different ideas on that level. He's also, you know, he's trying to do a lot of different things to establish himself as a strong leader, you know, very positive, smiling, upbeat when he speaks at these various conferences, which is him as a person anyway, but it's something he can obviously employ. He seems very jovial. Hmm? He does seem very jovial. But he's, he, you know, he's a very upbeat man. This is the way he is. I've known him a little bit over the years, and I can say to you that he's just a very pleasant, thoughtful individual, and he really likes people. He's really, truly a people person, which, yes, you have to be as a politician. We know that. But he really is that way as an individual. And uh, both he and his wife are very upbeat individuals and very positive thinking. And a lot of that is going to help him, you know, establish himself as a real political alternative to Justin Trudeau, who I'm not saying is sour, you know, or as a personality or dour looking. But obviously they're going to try to, at least in O'Toole's case, present the Conservative Party and the Conservative platform in a very positive light. He also made a note which I which resonated with me about working class Canadians uh, coming from Durham and his relationship to the auto industry there. Uh, yeah. Certainly pointing out that he's not an elitist and you know he's not there because of his name. Do you think that's going to resonate? 
it certainly will help. I mean, yes, it's true. His father worked in the the auto line for, or was in the auto line for at least several decades, two or three decades, as I recall. Um, obviously, Mr. Mr. O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party, is from the RCAF, but he definitely comes from a blue-collar or working-class background, which is perfectly fine, and it's obviously a good selling point because it, as you say, it shows that he's not an elite, he's not ultra-wealthy, he didn't actually come to this position based on a family name or some sort of a history line there. He basically created and became, you know, his own name and became successful on his own merits. And I think a lot of that is very helpful. And it certainly distinguishes himself from Justin Trudeau, who obviously his last name is extremely well known in this country because of his late father, Pierre Trudeau. And a lot of people sort of look at him as having a silver spoon in his mouth or being born with a silver spoon in his mouth before he ever became prime minister of this country. So if nothing else, they can obviously contrast the two positions. And I think for someone like O'Toole, it can be used as a positive. Uh, obviously talked a lot about unity right off uh, right off the top, including uh, the Western provinces and such and, and their inability to get their resources uh, to market, sort of hitting, uh, you know, covering two birds with one stone there. Yeah. Uh, how important was it? A lot of people are, are, are concerned because Canada is more divided now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. It's true, and we've talked about it, and I've talked about it with others. And, yes, it's actually a very important issue to bring up. I'm glad that he did it right off the bat. I think that actually shows that he recognizes, not just because the Conservative Party of Canada's support base, a lot of it does come from the West, not all, but it's a significant chunk of it, I think he also realizes, like a lot of other people, and I'm certainly in that category, that the Wexit Party or the Wexit movement in the West, which is currently led by Jay Hill, who people will probably remember to some extent as a longtime MP for the Reform Party, Canadian Alliance, and Conservatives, and they'll know him to be an intelligent, moderate-thinking person, but he's pretty tough on this issue because you know, he is frustrated by the way he feels Western Canada has been treated and the way that Eastern Canada appears to be favored in many different ways. So, like it or not, the Wexit Party has a fair amount of strength and support in the West to the point where it wouldn't shock me if they actually won one or two seats in the next federal election, unless Aaron O'Toole, who was brought it up right, right now, tries to ensure that, you know, that the prime minister and other federal leaders are on point when it comes to concerns about Western alienation. And Mr. O'Toole can present a positive face to Western Canada, which is historically favored right-of-center parties like the Conservatives, and continue to sort of build on that and, in his view, rebuild satisfaction, a positive attitude, and good relations with Western, Western Canadians in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and elsewhere. So there's a lot he can definitely do there. But, yeah, I think it's actually a good thing that he brought it up right away with the prime minister. And I hope he keeps talking about it as time goes along. We'll be doing a simulcast I should pass along to the listeners uh, tomorrow with our Calgary affiliate QR77. So it'll be fascinating to see uh, what they feel or and how they feel about uh, these latest developments. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated on short notice. Uh, no worries. My pleasure, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on to, uh, again, some great reporting by Global uh, Global News' uh, Sam Cooper. And we've had Sam on many times. There's a couple of great articles uh, that he has on the website right now. But intelligence and cybersecurity experts say a massive hacking and espionage campaign against Canada's former telecom leader, Nortel, likely allowed Chinese company Huawei to take Nortel's place. Uh, cybersecurity expert Brian Shields says hackers from China were inside Nortel's networks for at least 10 years, stealing company secrets, including documents regarding 3G, 4G, and 5G network te- uh, technology. Here's what he had to say. No, they were still on our network. They were still stealing, and they got away with it. This was like precision work, like a military unit, for goodness sake. These guys were highly trained, and they beat our best people that we had and our best tools and systems that we had. Uh, and they totally took us down. They had access to everything. All right, let's bring in uh, Sam Cooper. Uh, a couple of articles on the Global website inside the Chinese military attack on Nortel and the threat of Huawei's 5G network. Sam is with us now. Sam, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks, Scott. So, Sam, obviously we have talked about this uh, at great length with you, and uh, many have questioned Huawei's uh, involvement in the collapse of, of Nortel. And, and obviously you've written about this uh, many times. What's different this time? What new information do you have to, this, to add to this discussion? What's different this time is uh, I believe uh, this is the story that looks in most in-depth at really the the – just incredible reach and strategic focus of China's military campaign, espionage campaign, to uh, to really carve out what Nortel had and and uh, deliver it to uh, who could benefit in China. And so there have been reports on you know the strange happenings inside Nortel. There have been reports on hacking. But uh, in this story, we, we got new detail from Brian Shields, who was a cybersecurity advisor inside Nortel. And uh, he showed us documents that were uh, sucked out of Nortel in 2004, which is what led to his cyber investigation. And these are the documents that, that would be the future of uh, 3G, 4G, 5G. Uh, just to, to make it very simple, these are the documents where Nortel was leading the world in, in what would be the way to, uh, you know, deliver a, a video from a, a grandmother watching her child walk for the first time. Uh, she could see that because someone across the world could send that over a, you know, a 4G, 5G network. So this was, Canada was in the lead. And what Mr. Shields told us was that certainly there was bad management in Nortel, but in his view, uh, China was not China. We all know that China is targeting, you know, assets around the world. But in his view and the view of others, they were targeted. Nortel was at the very top of that list. One, because Nortel was leading the world in the technology that China's leaders identified they needed to catch up on. And two, because Canada simply didn't have the uh, really the governance and law enforcement capacity to combat this very deep hack. So that's the cyber side, but my story also gets into that human espionage side, which uh, we're learning how really aggressive and how strategic China can be. We're not just talking about the theft of documents. We're talking about seeing the, the thinking of the management, the board. So you're not just stealing 
what you know what what can benefit a Chinese company. You're learning what a, a Canadian company will bid on a crucial uh, 3G network contract, and if you can underbid them and burn a little bit of cash from China's government, essentially you can drive that company out of business. Some more details that uh, that have never been reported was intelligence sources say they discovered Chinese intelligence and Chinese organized crime were working together in Canada to target Nortel. Uh, this is not just theft, again, of intellectual property. This would be targeting of uh, powerful, important people in Canada that, that maybe could have done something to save Nortel. So those are a few of the things where I believe this story is is giving the the greatest picture yet of just how strategic and ruthless China is when they want something. So what does this say uh, about the argument that, in fact, uh, Huawei did do this, did uh, through cyber espionage steal the secrets of Nortel? Does this prove that? Does this does this move advance the discussion in any way? Because, again, many will point to uh, lax, uh, lax execs at Nortel and, and lack of security when they were approached with this sort of thing. They didn't seem to care. Um, so at the end of the day, how much does this new information add to this debate? Well, what this story does not say, it doesn't say that Huawei directly was responsible for espionage or that Huawei was responsible directly for stealing documents. Brian Shields doesn't say that. Uh, my intelligence sources don't say that. However, in the United States, uh, the FBI has alleged that Huawei was directly responsible for uh, stealing from many American companies in order to uh, underbid them, steal their technology, and, and take their market share. That's not alleged in Canada. We don't have that record. But what this story has is uh, more, more, more concrete evidence than ever before that elite Chinese cyber war uh, unit was involved that China's government, that is the, the Politburo, the seven or eight uh, men that rule China, direct this cyber war unit. And uh, many experts said, retrospectively, it's absolutely clear that the only company that could really benefit from this was Huawei. Furthermore, they're saying evidence is very strong now that Huawei is directly connected to Chinese intelligence agencies. There's no daylight in between them. So if you look back at what happened here, uh, logically, uh, the experts would say, yes, Huawei did have a hand. However, let's be clear, that has not been alleged in the Canadian court. Huawei strongly denies that allegation. And uh, with, with regards to what this story reveals about connections between Chinese organized crime and China's government, China's government did not answer our detailed questions. I'm sure they would deny that if they made the effort to respond. Um, uh, apparently this is going on over a period of, of almost a decade, uh, many reporting that, th that this came in through executive accounts that were hacked and, and, and upper level accounts. And yet the execs seemed lax when told about this, the same with government officials when they were approached and said, Hey, there, there's funny business going on here. Why that attitude? Why did everyone sit back and kind of let it happen? I think there's, uh, to boil it down, really two things going on. Uh, all the experts I talked to said, look, uh, no one was very much uh, listening to intelligence or, or security experts about cybersecurity in the early 2000s. 
This was very new. Yeah. And really, no one can claim that they had a, a very full picture of what China was involved in or, you know, its, its capacity and ruthlessness. However, you know, there were people there on the ground at the time that were starting to get those puzzle pieces. They didn't have the full lighted room, but they had, the, you know, a corner lit up. They were starting to understand. So that's one. Uh, another thing is that uh, people say Western executives, rightly, they have in our in our free market system, they have to be focused on on uh, making a profit for the year. They can't go too many years without without selling items. They have to pay their staff. They need, of course, in technology to be focused on innovation budgets. So they weren't listening uh, to their security. They again, this was very new. They thought this was the stuff of spy plots. So we can, you know, in fairness, we can we can give them that. However, uh, some people, uh, for example, Michel Juno Cassia, a former CSIS investigator, says he believes, for one, there's strong evidence that uh, China's espionage uh, networks were directly attempting to compromise leaders in Nortel. Of course, they're trying to compromise Canadian politicians. Mr. Juno Cassia says. He strongly believes that people were compromised. He did not provide me the evidence. I haven't seen a document that said this, says this, but he believes bad mistakes were made for uh, for bad reasons. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that I, I have access to information requests that I believe will shed a lot more light on this story. They're delayed, but... Uh, you're right. A lot has been reported on this story, but my sources say there's much, much more to learn. Uh, you talked about way back when hard to, you know, to, to make a judgment through today's lens on on what was happening, uh, you know, 10 years ago or such. But does government have a clear does the government of the day have a clear picture of what's going on now? Our current government, uh, I, you know, uh, let's let's be very clear. The the Trudeau government is still sitting on the Huawei 5G decision. Uh, we don't know why they're sitting on it uh, for such an extended period of time. Uh, but you, ec- national security ex- experts say, look, there's more than enough. There, there's there's just too much evidence to sit on that decision. So I can't speak for this current government. I can tell you that. Uh, Outside of, you know, the political realm, certainly within Canada's government, the bureaucracy, there is a growing recognition of what China is capable of. I understand that, you know, there are people that are making the arguments there needs to be a whole of government response to interference from countries. uh, First on the list would be China, also Russia, Iran, North Korea in both the cyber and espionage realm. However, uh, the experts also say that Australia, New Zealand, uh, not New Zealand, sorry, Australia and the United States are countries with very powerful laws. Uh, the United States, of course, has, you know, powerful counterintelligence investigations underway with the FBI. Australia has strong anti-foreign interference laws. Canada simply doesn't have the laws or the capacity to counter uh, China's attacks on companies. And let me be clear, it's not just companies, it's Hong Kong Canadians, Chinese dissidents that are similarly being targeted, they told us. And Canada, I won't say we're a sitting duck, because uh, certainly leaders are starting to recognize, but we don't yet have evidence that Canada really has an action plan to counter these threats. 
as you mentioned, the Prime Minister has been uh, quite slow to react on 5G and, and a lot of these issues, many citing the two Michaels as the reason for that. But are there Canadians uh, with interests in China that don't want uh, the Canadian government upsetting China right now for financial reasons. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot that have money invested in China and have had for a couple of decades. Certainly, uh, I think you're right about that. And there are you know good reasons to to fear making a Huawei decision, and there are bad reasons. The good reasons would be there there's uh, there's mounting evidence that not only are the Michaels involved in that consideration, but China has already warned countries that it will retaliate. Uh, they're warning countries in Europe, we will do something bad to you, mostly on trade, if you shut out Huawei 5G. That's one thing. I'm sure that uh, Canada's, uh, this, this, this sitting government fears that. Beyond that, there, there's good evidence that China would block uh, COVID uh, vaccine research. Uh, Canada is already in a joint partnership with a company with uh, connections to the People's Liberation Army in China. And, uh, you know, that partnership is in jeopardy, some think, because of the Michael situation or uh, Canada's move in Hong Kong to, to retract an extradition deal or, you know, what, what could happen with uh, the vaccine research. So you can believe that if, if Canada steps up and blocks Huawei, there will be a countermeasure from China. The bad uh, China- Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. You, you mentioned investment. Um, certainly, I think there's, uh, when I talk to my sources, whether they're in politics or uh, intelligence, law enforcement, they say, look, elite capture has occurred in Canada to, to the effect that it's not just talking about uh, will trade for this country be impacted. Certainly, there are people surrounding political parties that have very deep investments in China and whether they're influencing uh, this sitting government or other governments not to act, I think that's a very important question. Uh, is China already too woven into our economy, into our society? Have we become too dependent, too late to turn back, too dependent on China? Well, I think that's that's the debate of the day. And uh, there are people that would say, even if they are, Canada, other nations, uh other Western nations certainly need to do what they can to, to unweave that bond just for national security reasons and understanding China's long-term goal of being the dominant, uh, the dominant political force in the world. They're not shy about saying that. So what does a world where, where China is the number one power look like? Uh, is it too far gone? Um, look at Hong Kong. Uh, that, that, that jurisdiction, you can argue, can't be, you can't take back what China has done there. So there, there's an example that my sources would say, a long, steady campaign of espionage, of uh, this collaboration between China's government and organized crime and business to take over a jurisdiction. Can Canada, does Canada face that threat? Yes, I would, my sources would say there, there is still time and hope but Canada needs to, to act like countries like Australia have to uh, enact foreign interference laws.
Uh, getting back to 5G, and, and I know you got to go. This will be our last question. And getting back to 5G, uh, as you said, the other five eyes have, have said they don't want any involvement with Huawei's 5G network. UK said they were for a bit, but have, have since pulled back on all of that uh, and will not. Uh, two of the three major companies, I believe, in Canada have already announced they will not be using uh, Huawei's infrastructure. Is the government waiting for business to make this decision instead of having to make the the, the decision on its own? That's an argument that I've heard. Uh, business has recognized the, the way the wind is blowing. And I, certainly, I think some people, uh, some people very close to, you know, power circles in Ottawa have told me the government, if it had its wish, for one, the UK wouldn't have a uh, banned or or moved away from Huawei. That way, Canada could have uh, stayed with the UK on that decision. And for two, the government uh, quite likely would like to see Canadian industry do the do the tough work here and stand in the background because that would, uh, you know, there's an argument to that, that you don't uh, face something very severe with the Michaels in jail or can uh, China blocking uh, COVID vaccine research or, or harming Canada in trade. So it, it remains to be seen because uh, certainly the pressure from countries like uh, Australia and the United States for Canada's government to, to stand up with them is, is rising. Sorry, Sam, one more. Why did the UK eventually pull out of 5G? Because again, they were, they were sort of opening the door, but then all of a sudden, uh, I think around COVID-19, they, they retracted on that. What, what was their reasoning? Why did they do that? That's right. I think it's a probably a, it, it looks like a two pronged decision. It, it's partly political. It's the, really the uh, the realization and anger over China's cover up of uh, the coronavirus and how that hurt the rest of the world. Uh, people realizing China simply is not a reliable partner. Uh, there's some intel- a lot of intelligence in that decision, but uh, sources say maybe even more. It's because the United States has the uh, has has come up with this law where uh, American companies can't sell the you know the little technical bits that that make networks run to Huawei. And so if 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 you don't know what is inside a Huawei network, uh, country certainly I think the UK made the decision. They, they they just don't have the any certainty or confidence if that's not the case. So it is a U.S. government pressure move certainly. Investigative journalist with Global News, Sam Cooper, has been with us. Two great articles on the Global website, Threat of the Huawei 5G and Inside the Chinese Military Attack on Nortel. Sam, thank you for the time. As always, fascinating stuff, and be well. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. City of Hamilton updating COVID cases now, but youth seem to be behind the newer COVID cases. Uh, we've talked about this before. The younger demographics, are they getting the hint? Uh, are they got the idea it's not going to affect them? Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor and health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Again, uh, talking about younger demographics and these numbers increasing, uh, how are you concerned? Are you concerned about that? Plus the return to school, whether it's uh, uh, post-secondary or uh, any one of the schools, secondary or or uh, elementary? Well, I am concerned. I think over the past 10 days in Hamilton, we've seen that 20% of Hamilton's new COVID cases have been among people between the age of 20 to 29. And about 13% of any new cases have been children under the age of 10. That's three times the rate for Hamilton's children under 10 since the pandemic uh, started. 
and you and I have been on the show talking about COVID and how it actually happens in the community and who is at most vulnerable. Initially, you know, when we started our discussions around COVID-19 and our learning around this uh, virus, we really just focused on elderly and immunocompromised. But I think the evidence is showing us that we need to be concerned about younger populations for two main reasons. Number one is that, A, we're now having data and numbers that indicate that COVID-19 does not really discriminate against age. Surely it it, it affects older people, uh, worse outcomes in older people than younger. But nonetheless, it still affects certainly most age groups. And second, that our campaign or our initiatives, our public health interventions of social distancing and clean hand hygiene and maintaining physical distance between people has not really been that effective among the young and the youth. And that makes us question whether we need to revisit our strategies, especially with schools reopening in the fall. Uh, Your thoughts on uh, even cases under the age of 10. Uh, we certainly know that schools are school boards and, and jurisdictions are juggling with uh, whether to make masks in the younger grades part of their curriculum or not. Uh, what are your thoughts on on the increase in, in this age group? Well, the increase in this age group is interesting because we've already seen reports of that in the U.S. So we've been getting reports in the United States that there have children under the age of 10 have been affected by COVID-19. And there has been some rare, and I emphasize rare, severe consequences for children under the age of 10. So that's that's fascinating to us from a research perspective because it makes us think that the virus is manifesting itself a little bit differently in children under the age of 10. And so we have to keep a close eye on it. I think everybody who's involved in clinical research right now is really trying to pay attention to that demographic and to figure out like what, how does this play out and what are the consequences for children under the age of 10. In terms for us here in Canada and schools, I think that's going to make us re-examine our strategy and to really pay close attention whether, you know, uh, do we have the right interventions in place? And by that, I mean, you know, we've been saying that we need face masks to be worn by, by children at a, from a certain age group. But if you talk to any parent under the age of 10, they'll tell you that it's very difficult and almost very challenging to get their kids under the age of 10 to adhere to wearing face masks. And that's going to require some creative thinking around how do we actually encourage that type of public health intervention in children uh, under, in that age group. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, Ahmad, is there any way to do this even uh, safely, even with 15 in a class? I mean, 15 has been that number that everybody's, you know, that's the benchmark. That's, you know, like sometimes if we get to 15, everybody will be safe. Um, What's the difference, whether it's 15, whether it's 20, whether it's 22, uh, 25? Is there a way to do this safely, even with 15 in a class? I challenge anybody that would claim to say that by reducing class size a certain number, you have 100% effectiveness or safety against COVID-19. I will emphasize one thing that's very important to highlight here, Scott. There is no perfect solution. So if we're looking for that formula that will guarantee that none of our children will get COVID-19, that's almost impossible to, to have that. What we're trying to do here, and I give everybody the best of intentions, I believe that our government, our uh, school board, the parents, everybody involved is really going at this with the best intention at heart. And by that, I mean is that we're trying to figure out best case scenario. What are the things that we can put in place that will protect our children to the most, the best of our ability? That includes reducing class size. And the reason behind that is very simple. When when you reduce the number of people, the number of children in our classrooms, you can manage that number in terms of physical distancing between each student better. If we we have such a large number of students in one class, 
it becomes almost impossible to really allow physical distancing to happen and for the teacher to be able to control uh, the, the, you know, the monitoring of the class behavior so to make sure that the kids are wearing the face mask, that they're not getting in too close of a contact with each other, to keep a cl- close eye if there are any symptoms or, or she or she notices a problem with a student that might need further attention. So this is why reduction of class size is important. And lastly, we, we have other international comparisons, Denmark and Norway, that have reduced class size to only nine students per class have shown to actually not have an increase in the number of COVID-19 transmission. Doesn't mean they've eliminated it, they just didn't see an increase. So why 15, why not nine? Well, I think the number 15 comes to the number of logistics. So how many children we have in a school, how many many can we limit, uh, but still be able to open? I mean, listen, at the end of the day, we're not Denmark and Norway. We have much bigger population and our demographic and our context is very different. we look at other countries for learning lessons, but then we need to adapt them to our own context. So from nine to 15 is not that big of a difference and it still allows uh, school boards and schools to really adhere to physical distancing measures within the classroom, given our own demographic and our own context. So what advice do you have for parents between now and back to school time? My advice to parents is simple. I empathize with you, and I always say that I think we need to start from a place of empathy and understanding to our parents. I mean, parents are concerned. I spoke to parents this past weekend who are genuinely confused. They, they want information, but they're still not sure what decision to make about whether to send their child back to school or not. And some have made that decision, but are still sort of on the fence. So my advice to all parents out there is keep educating yourself and keep asking for the information. You have every right to ask for how is your child protected and what measures are in place to ensure that the school is doing the best that they can to protect your child. Do you think by the beginning of September we'll have a handle on this? I don't think so. I think it's going to be a learning uh, curve. I think we're going to open up schools. We're going to learn as the day progress. I don't, I, I, I very unlikely I foresee that we are going to be fully prepared by day one. That's not in human nature. We're not the type of people that will be like perfect on day one. That's very unlucky, uh, unlikely, sorry. So I think what's going to happen, Scott, is that we're going to see that rapid progression towards a better state, but it's going to be a learning curve for sure. Uh, many are opting for a staggered start. The government has already said, uh, you know, that's certainly an option. Uh, who would go first? Would it be the younger kids or the older kids that would start first? That's a very good question. I would assume that if they were going to make a decision, I'm not informed of what, what direction the government might go on that one, but I would assume given the evidence that probably best to start with the older kids because they're more likely to adhere to guidelines. So like it's probably easier to tell you know, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, you must wear your face mask, so, you know, than, than a child. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I'm sure they're reviewing all the evidence to decide which direction to go with that one. But a staggered approach could actually prove to be very effective. It's very similar to what we did in Ontario with opening right. up uh, our economy, right? We didn't do it all at once. We did it in a staggered approach, and we've shown that that be a very effective mechanism to get ahead of COVID-19. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Day one of the Republican National Convention saw the president assume the nomination for the party and a variety of speeches uh, denouncing the plans from their opposition and a lot of family members uh, involved here. Let's bring in Michael Trogott, Professor Emeritus, Communication Studies, Political Science, University of Michigan. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing fine. Thank you. So good to be my, with you, Scott. Michael, your, your thoughts on day one and the, the list of speakers and such and how it all went. Well, we've known for some time that in the Trump administration, uh, we have a kind of post-policy government. And uh, there is uh, an interest in the demonstration of being in power, but not much thought uh, devoted to extensive policy development. And I think that's pretty much what we saw in the presentations last evening. There were um, speeches admiring the Trump presidency, uh, admiring Donald Trump personally, not very much uh, discussion of policy achievements for an incumbent president, and, of course, several family members or people associated with family members rather than uh, uh, Republican uh, elected officials and candidates. How do you think that's going to resonate with Americans, that there's a lot of family here? Well, uh, the, the main point, of course, is that Donald Trump has been campaigning directly to his base ever since he took office. And for the base... It's uh, not going to make very much difference. I think it's what they've come to expect. But for independents, uh, this could be quite troubling, uh, especially when you think about tonight's program, which has the Secretary of State addressing the convention, too. He's supposed to be speaking allegedly in his uh, personal position, position, not in his governmental position, but of course he's on the diplomatic mission to Israel, so he, he's been traveling in his diplomatic position. Your thoughts on the selling of doom and gloom, particularly with one speaker, I believe it might have been the spouse of, of uh, Donald Jr., um, your, your thoughts, on especially selling the doom and gloom? Yeah, I think, it's, I think we should probably more appropriately describe her as his girlfriend or his paramour. But um, I think this is, you know, part of the general strategy. He's trying to convince his base that there's a danger if he's not elected, uh, uh, a risk to their personal lives. Um, part, part of his message is economic. You're going to lose out financially. Part of it has racial overtones. The value of your property is going to go down the if Biden and the Democrats win uh, because there'll be black and brown people moving into your neighborhood. So I, I actually would think that in the advertising campaign going forward, it'll, things will become even darker. Uh, what about the fact that, uh, as you said, uh, the president's son's girlfriend is up there speaking? Uh, that just seems wrong on so many fronts when you think of all of the people that the Democrats had at their convention. Well, 
there are no Democrats vouching for Donald Trump. That's that's one difference. Yeah, and yeah. We're former Republicans, uh, uh, our current Republicans vouching for Joe Biden. But uh, I think symptomatic of the way the Trump organization uh, functions frequently, uh, she is actually on the payroll as a fundraiser for the campaign. So she technically has a campaign position, uh, but I think it's very unusual. This wouldn't happen under what we would think of as ordinary circumstances. Uh, is there any uh, truth to the rumors that this is all part of a run by Donald Jr. to eventually uh, hold the White House? Well, I, I think that would only be aspirational among a few people, including Donald Trump Sr. and maybe a couple of close friends. But uh, they have to get through this campaign first before they can think about 2024. Good point. Uh, we talked about this before, I believe. Uh, Donald Trump said yesterday, uh, we're going to win, and if we don't win, this is rigged. Uh, is, is he going to double down on that? Oh, I think he definitely will double down on that. This will be a theme all the way through and past Election Day about the validity of the vote count and uh, whether or not uh, there were any illegal or fraudulent activities uh, conducted, you know, with regard to the voting. He, he won by uh, uh, a reasonable margin in the Electoral College, although he lost the popular vote in 2016. And he argued that he should have won the popular vote, except for illegal voting by immigrants and fraudulent voting in a couple of locations in the United States. And I, I expect him uh, to make the same kind of arguments all through the campaign because of the complication of the coronavirus and the need for more mail ballots because people don't want to stand in line for extended periods of time at their polling places. So th- this is not going to this is not going to go away. Do you think, Michael, that America will be more united after this election? And that does that does that matter? Is that does that uh, is, is that based on who has won? In other words, will this somehow unite the country? I don't. I don't think that um, even uh, a landslide uh, Biden victory uh, will unite the country. Um, the. The Trump campaign is going to be organized around a series of cultural divides and and, uh, deliberate cleavages that he will try to create in order to stimulate turnout among his essentially white base. And um, if he loses, his base is going to believe his claims about uh, a fraudulent outcome that, you know, that the results, the election was rigged. And um, when under a a Biden administration, if there is one, they try to go back to the norms of democracy that we have experienced or used to in the recent past, uh, that'll that'll also turn into a dividing point about, you know, returning to the swamp, for example, and Hmm. and uh, reinvigorating the deep state. 
Michael Trogott has been with us, Professor Emeritus of Communication Studies and Political Science at the University of Michigan, talking about day one of the, of the Republican National Convention. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.